0: The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's First Epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen 17-34. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it would not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning. Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City. Uh, I've been out of the pulpit for a month. I feel a little... Uh, you know, they say fighters, when they stick, they stay out too long, they, they come back with a little bit of ring rust on, so I feel like I might have a little bit of pulpit rust this morning. I uh, couldn't really get my thoughts together in the last few days, but we're trusting the Spirit. Uh, I had a a month of, not really vacation or relaxing, but a month where I had to get stuff done around the house that, uh, you know, preachers don't just kind of have some kind of ethereal existence, but we have everyday real lives where kids scream and throw fits and, Poop their pants and break things and write on walls and do all this fun stuff, and I've got our fourth little crumb snatcher, affectionately called Crumb Snatcher, uh, on the way. And we've got some—we had some work we had to do around the house. So I put a new roof on the house this month, and I'm trying to get some things ready for the baby to come in September. And then we had our Acts 29 retreat, and uh, had a 10-year anniversary. we have had a lot of things. I kind of want to go into that, but. My heart's still a little too soft, wounded to go into that. Uh, might as well do it, just fill you guys in. So, uh, get this off my chest here. It's a big confessional time. Uh, man and I had a 10-year anniversary, and we've got to go down to Miami, rough, rough, I know, for an Acts 29 retreat. That's the network of churches that we're a part of, um, and it's an annual treat that that they pay for us uh, for for three days every year. So we said, well, let's just partner with that. Let's go down three days before. Let's do our 10-year anniversary. Let's take a cruise. We've never done a cruise before. We will leave the kids with whoever will take them. And it's a a rotation, actually. Uh, And we're going to, let's just go enjoy each other for our 10-year anniversary on a cruise, all-inclusive. It's going to be fun. And we were looking forward to it, the whole thing. Wake up at 4 a.m., take the flight, get down there, go through the long lines, check your baggage. Oh, Jesus, we're almost there. About to get on the and a lady says, hey, how far along, how far pregnant are you? And my wife says, 26 weeks. And she says, no, you're not. She gives us look, and we're like, and like, I've been up since 4 a.m., so my quick-wittedness just wasn't happening. And I was like, no, oh, yes, we are. And my wife said, yes, we are. And she's like, oh. And she went back, gets her manager. Basically, the cutoff for the cruise ship is 24 weeks pregnant. We were two weeks past. denied. Uh, we got turned away from the ship. And it was a pretty rough 36 hours. Um, it, was, it was difficult. We, we had a, a difficult time, and my heart was not in a place where it was resting in the gospel. Let me just tell you that. All right? Let me just tell you that. So there are some things that we believe, but somehow in our belief and in our mind, those things don't make their way down into our behavior. And the funny thing is God, when he built the church... Uh, He gave us some practices. Many times they've been called spiritual disciplines, some things that he gave us to do that were meant, listen to me now, they were meant to take what we believe and work it down into uh, who we are and and, and our behavior and our character. And I'm just going to say right now, believing is not enough. Your belief has got to take shape in your life and work its way out, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. I'm not going to be able to treat this text Exhaustively, by any means, it's a tough text. It's a text that's been fought over and disagreed over for about two thousand years. Um, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Spirit to be here, and I'm going to do my best. And we're going to we're going to read and study this morning. So let's pray. Father, you are a gracious Father. You are a gracious Dad. That we don't deserve. None of us earned our way into your family. For those of us in here who call themselves a Christian. I've been adopted. It's all because of the grace of Jesus Christ. One man, the son of the living God, lived a perfect life that we all fail to live. And then he took our place and he took our wrath and he took our judgment. He, he put the sins of the world, our sins, on himself and he paid our price so that he could have many brothers, so that he could bring many sons to the father and daughters. And, and we thank you for what you've done in this room. And I ask today that you would anoint my mind uh, to think your thoughts. I ask the Spirit to lead me. Um, I ask that you would use anything, a part of me that you can, personality, whatever, use it, that you would get all the glory, that I would be uh, just a mouthpiece, that you would stand in front of me, you would overshadow me this morning. I ask that you would anoint our ears to hear the word of the Lord. Um, Give them ears to hear you, not ears to hear me, Father, and that you uh, would be glorified and we would see Jesus in a different way this morning. We ask all these things in the, your precious Son's name. Amen. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for a while now, and uh, we are getting into s- some really great stuff. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, we've, we've been affectionately titled this series, Following Jesus in a Jacked Up Church. And listen, today we get a chance to be thankful for this jacked up church in Corinth because we would not know how really how the early church practiced the Lord's Supper if we didn't have this jacked up church because Paul really doesn't write about the Lord's Supper in very many other places he makes a little bit of mention of it but he doesn't describe it in detail how did the church when they came together how did they practice the Lord's Supper what did they do what did it mean well, because this church was so jacked up and they were doing things so wrong, he writes to them and he's trying to correct their use uh, and abuse of the Lord's Supper. So today we get to rejoice that this church was jacked up. Because hopefully, because they were so jacked up, our practice and our theology can kind of come in line and get corrected. Because uh, I think all of us, you know, uh, when the Reformation hit, the, the Reformers had this, Slogan, it was reformed, always reforming, according to the Word of God. Reformed, always reforming to the Word of God. What it means is, uh, think, of the, think of us as in a stream, okay? If you stop paddling and, you, and you're in a stream, what happens? You go wherever the stream is going, Right? What, what, the, what the Reformers meant by reformed, always reforming, is if we're not constantly working to bring our practices back to the Word of God and say, okay, okay, this is what we've been doing for a long time, but let's evaluate that with the Word of God. Is this, what, is this how they were doing it then? Is this what Jesus instituted? Is this what the early church wanted for us to... Is this what sh- our gathering should look like? So we're reformed, always reforming. Okay, we're always coming back and evaluating our community life, our theology, um, the way that we're doing life, the way that we're gathering as a church, um, the way we're structuring the church, big words, our ecclesiology. We're always bringing that back and saying, um, is this what the Word of God has us to do? How can we correct it? How can we bring it back? How can we be more obedient to the ways of the Lord? So, this morning we're specifically talking about the Lord's Supper, or communion, or the Eucharist, as it's often been called, Been disagreement among Christians for at least 2,000 years. There are major differences between Catholics and Protestants on what actually happens in the meal. But there are also millions of more nuanced differences between almost all evangelical churches. And I don't have time nor the desire to get into all of that this morning, but I'm going to try to give us a 30,000 foot overview of what's happening in the Lord's Supper, what's happening in the elements that we practice on a week-in, week-out basis. See, and I'm I'm just going to do this. Basically, I can do this, give this 30,000-foot view, by separating churches into two big umbrellas. And we're going to call those high church and low church. It's kind of how the church is set up, All right, There's high churches and there's low churches. A high church is a church that uh, usually uses a historical liturgy uh, they use creeds many times. The preacher will be wearing a dress. I mean, it's a robe, whatever, but it's a dress, right? He'll be wearing a dress, sometimes something, sometimes some kind of sweet hat, right? They usually take the Lord's Supper every single week. Uh, they put a great deal on tradition and the Christian tradition that Christians have practiced throughout history. Uh, Just to throw some names out there, and this, guys, this is a big picture. It's not everybody, it's not every denomination, it's not even every type of, you know, but most of the time it's like Presbyterians, Catholics, Anglicans, some Lutherans. Uh, Most of these folks, if you had to characterize them, they think church should be really serious, right? Church is a really serious business. Um, Many times... uh, they can be classified actually I was reading a book this week a classic by George Steinbeck called East of Eden and uh, it kind of cl- I just laughed so let me just read this little description of this lady in the book and, and you can maybe laugh with me he said she had a dour Presbyterian mind and a code of morals that pinned down and beat the brains out of nearly everything that was pleasant to do right <laughs> like high church you kind of get that we know what's wrong we, we like to come down on things you know we're not that fun, right? And there's been a, re, there was a huge, and that was all churches actually, that's where we all come from for the most part, but then there was a reaction to that, that dour Presbyterian mind, that, that negativity, and I'll tell you, Sacred City gets thrown into that sometimes because we talk about sin a lot, and we say well, that we're sinners, and we're broken, and that we need a Savior, um, but there was a reaction to that, and, and it was a reaction, this reaction is like, it's called like, we call it, big picture, low church, it's a low church, low ecclesiology That's most of our churches today, okay? They don't use liturgy. They don't quote any of the historic creeds. Oftentimes, they only celebrate the Lord's Supper once a quarter or maybe once a month. This is a lot of Baptist denominations, e-free, non-denominational, charismatic churches. Um, And oftentimes, these churches, you'll hear them say it from the pulpit, church should be fun, church should be fun. Like, that's one of the things, that church should be fun. And I came to faith in a church like that. I came to faith in a charismatic church. that was definitely low church. No one went to seminary. They literally, affectionately, the pastors called it cemetery. Don't go to cemetery, right? That's what they called it. So I like, had this negative view of, of theology, this negative view of the creeds, negative view of learning, really. No one read books on theology. I never heard the word liturgy, and I had no idea what the creeds were. But, boy, we loved the Spirit. Now, we spent most of our time focused, and I I became a pastor at this church, most of our time focused on creating an emotional experience in the gathering. But we rarely studied the Bible. We never went verse by verse. Very pragmatic most of the time. Worship was loud and long. Many times going right on through the preaching. It was full of emotion, it was all about m- emotion, and the goal was to get stirred up every single week. The point was, or the thought was, we get beat down all week long, we need to come in on Sunday and get our emotional engines revved up. So we've got enough emotion, emotional energy in the gas tank that we can last another six days until we come back and we get that thing pumped up again. That was kind of the mentality. And if you know anything about human beings, you know that the things that stir us up usually don't stir us up for long, right? As we get used to things, they become familiar. And when they become familiar, they stop giving us the same feelings they once did. So in most low churches, tradition becomes something to avoid. Tradition is something that's stifling to our intimacy with God. So the his, you know, history and the historic creeds and theology and tradition is something that we kind of look at and go, oh, that's cold and that's dead, and that's going to make us like that Presbyterian who's just lifeless. That's kind of the, the mind, the mindset behind that. So we're going to react to that dead religion. We're going to react to that cold Presbyterianism, that high church mentality. We're going to react to that, and actually what we're going to do is overreact to that, and now everything becomes about emotion and what's happening right now and how I feel. And what happens is you really become unhinged, right? The boat that was supposed to be firmly attached to the shore by its anchor uh, becomes, you know, it's been unloosed, it's been unmoored, and it's it's just floating out, and it's whatever the wind or the wave takes it. And many of these churches, many of these churches wind up in, in heresy, they begin teaching crazy stuff because they don't know history, they don't know about doctrine, they don't know about theology. So... The church that is focused on creating this weekly emotional experience is forced to get louder, to get longer, to get crazier, to get more out there week after week in order to keep people's emotions buzzing. We were talking about, I think I was talking to someone about uh, uh, Advent. I think it was Advent that we do around here, and that's a historical season of the church. It's a part of the church calendar. And he was asking us what we do, and I said we just we just what do we do we we sing christmas hymns and i preach the word and oh because i'm coming in on a zipline so, well there's that i do have thing i mean i could do something up there i guess like but i mean that that's that's the like the mentality is every year something big has got to happen <laughs> and i want to go like something bigger than God being born as a baby, oh, okay, there is that. Sometimes you know this incarnation thing gets a little old, so we need a zip line to spice it up, right? Jesus dying and resurrecting, we need something a little more. Give me some pyrotechnics, right? So there's this thing about low church that you have to recreate something awesome every week, and it's got to get better and better and better and better. That's a great downfall. I'm gonna tell you, that's a great downfall to many churches, and that uh, churches that we say, oh, this church has got a phenomenal kids ministry you drop them off and they got a slide and it goes down to some balls and they... It's like you're programming your child to need to be entertained. We're programming our child that they need something bigger, badder, and better. Right? We're we're, we're shaping their souls to be consumers. It's detrimental to our faith. Now, just so you know, I don't know where we're at on that spectrum that I just gave you. (laughs) High church, low church? I don't know. I'm hoping that we can find a third way in the middle there because we want to hold on to the historic creeds and the traditions and the theology, but we want to have an emotional experience. We want God to to change our hearts. We are at Sacred City, to let the cat out of the bag, a charismatic church. But we say affectionately that we are charismatic with a (laughs) seatbelt. We love the Holy Spirit. We desire to be led by the Holy Spirit in all that we do. We believe that we can have an experience with the Holy Spirit and that through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit changes lives week after week in our gatherings and in our missional communities. We believe that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to every single believer and those gifts are to be used to build up the body of Christ, to serve on a, in our Sunday gathering and in our week. In our week, uh, regular weeks, intermissional communities. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be getting into gifts, spiritual gifts. Paul's got a lot to say in the next few chapters on spiritual gifts. So we're going to be talking about that. But we want our uh, charismatic beliefs that the Holy Spirit is real and active and living and wants to uh, use us and, and wants to anoint the Word of God. We want to be firmly fastened. Our seatbelts want to be locked real tight-like into the Word of God right? We, be, uh, we want our anchors holding right here, not in our own emotional experience. Emotions can take us far, far, far from what the Word of God says is right and good. See, what often happens in a low church, or even a, just a charismatic church, is that the Bible and theology, the study of God, sometimes becomes secondary to the Spirit. It's almost like they separate the Trinity, we love the Spirit, but God's kind of mean. I don't even know about this guy, but Jesus, he's pretty nice, right? We want to separate the Trinity. It's not about, in, those, in that type of church, the church that I grew up, it's not about what you know, it's about how you feel. How do I feel in this moment? So in many charismatic churches, they see their minds. I, I've heard preachers say, like, shut your minds off. Like, you can't think about this. You're, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. See, they see their minds as like a detractor from truly experiencing God. If, and if we, we believe if the human person is three parts, we, we say around here, head, heart, and hands, mind, soul, spirit, if the human being is three parts, that we should be worshiping God and engaging God with all of our personhood. You can't just throw the mind out in order to engage God with our heart. See, Jesus was really purposeful in Luke 10. When he told us, love the Lord your God. This is the one thing, number one commandment right here. The main deal right here. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Right? Heart, mind, soul, strength. We can't just turn off our minds. We must glorify God with all of our minds. That means our gatherings should challenge our thinking. They should be theologically rich, and it should cause us to do some, uh, m- some heavy mental lifting. Right? We should be challenged. We should, should think. I don't really know what that means. Maybe I need to Google it real quick. There should be some of that in here. And it kind of sounds like high church. So, says, so uh, there should be some pieces of high church and some pieces of what we call low church. It should engage our hearts. At Sacred City, we really want to be right in the middle of both. We want our emotions to be stirred through our minds. And one of the ways we seek to do that is through our practice of things that have been handed down to us through the Bible and Christian tradition. Here in chapter 11, Paul wrote in verse 2. He says this in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, I don't know what background you come from, but the background that I came up in in Charismatic, they would literally say, that's tradition, that's man-made, that's bogus. We don't want anything to do with that. If you, like, started talking about theology, started talking about anything like that, that's, that's where they would go. Man-made tradition. But Paul right here, is saying, I commend you because you're walking in the traditions that I taught you. You're walking in the things that I have shown you to do, the ways that I've told you to live, the ways that I received from Jesus. You're walking in those traditions, and I commend you on it. He's saying Christian tradition is a good thing. Paul's teaching needs to be remembered. We need to be reforming back to it again and again. And the believer's behavior and practice needs to fall in line with this tradition. And listen, you're going to find out. Paul was as charismatic as they come, right? Paul spoke in tongues. Paul prophesied. Paul healed people. Paul did some crazy stuff. Paul was as prophetic and as out there and as charismatic as they come, but he doesn't see Christian tradition as... um, a, 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 a stumbling block to being charismatic, a stumbling block to flowing in the Spirit, a stumbling block to experiencing God. In fact, it was just the opposite, as we see today. And I love this part, man, because growing up in a charismatic church, you really don't know how to grow, and you really don't know how to grow in God because it's like this ethereal, it's this ethereal thing that's out there, and it's like, what do I do? Do I worship? longer or louder or do I get on my knees do I lift my hands Do what do I have to do is it, do I just wait for something miraculously to take place like how do I get closer to God what is it right and all other religions will give you all these kind of crazy things that you've got to do to become one with the universe and say this and do that and Christianity gets so uh, real and I'm going to say today so real that Jesus gives us something he puts something in our hands he puts something in our mouth and he says, this thing, when you eat it, when you taste it, when you take it into yourself, will, if you do it correctly, will change you into a certain type of person. It'll shape your soul. See, Paul believed and taught that it was our adherence to Christian tradition that kept us experiencing God Day after day after day, week after week. Now, that can be a confusing statement, so I gotta make this really clear before we really jump into this. No one, if you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you just grew up in the church, no one becomes a Christian by following Christian tradition. You become a Christian. When the sovereign God of the universe opens your eyes and gives you faith and you believe that the Lord, His Son, Jesus Christ, took your place on the cross and that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with once and for all. that this is all done by the grace of God through faith. So that means it's all about belief. Becoming a Christian is all about belief. Do you believe? Do you trust in that? That's how you become a Christian. All grace. All faith. All belief. But this is the key. This is what we need to see, the nuance. But being a Christian. See, this is how you become a Christian. But being a Christian, living a Christian. living like a Christian, following Jesus means taking those beliefs and working them down deep into your mind and into your heart and letting them shape you into a certain type of person. We all know what a hypocrite is, right? A hypocrite is somebody who says something, but their life says something totally different, right? Right? And, and a man of character and an integrity. Integrity literally means, integrity means the same all the way through. So the, the process, we, you know, big words, sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus means taking our beliefs and working them down into us so we become a certain type of person. Now listen to this. When Jesus gave, and this is, you're not gonna hear this too often, I don't think, today. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, Matthew 28, right? Jesus, he's leaving. He's he's dead. He's resurrected. He's giving his uh, apostles his, like, last thing. He's telling them what to do. He says this. Well, first off, he did not say, go, make disciples of all nations, having them say a prayer to get into heaven. Do it! No. Listen. And I think, that's what, I think for the last hundred years, our, the churches, especially in our country, have been teaching that. Hey, you can get to heaven. If you were to die tonight, where would you go? Go make disciples telling them how to get to heaven. That's not what he said. Jesus never uh, misspoke. He's very specific with his word choice. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism. It's part of Christian tradition. Something we can do. In what? Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deep, rich, Trinitarian theology informs our Christian practice and our Christian tradition. Then what's he say? Jesus doesn't stop there. He says this. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. He's be with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, listen, I want you to tell people what to believe. I want them to believe in me, but I want you, part of discipleship, is teaching them to observe the way I live my life and how I did things and everything I taught you. And that's Christian tradition. See, we enter into the Christian faith through belief. We believe Jesus is Lord, but then we're shaped into people who look like Jesus through our practices, and those practices are handed down to us through the Christian tradition. Baptism, the gathering of God's people together under the teaching of Scripture, singing hymns, reciting liturgy, sharing the Lord's Supper together, praying, these are all pieces of Christian tradition that have been passed down to us from Jesus and even from before the times of Jesus. And they're meant to shape us into a certain type of person. But this is where things can go drastically wrong. If we don't reform and always reforming, if we don't come back to the scripture, what happens to tradition, right? We know something went wrong in tradition when we see, when, when Presbyterians, So I'm just going to tell you, Presbyterians, in my opinion, have the best theology on the planet, okay? They are, they, they man, Those guys can can lean over a book like nobody else, right? They can write. They're nuanced. They they have great theology. But they're not known for their warm hearts. They're not known for their worship. They're not known for their affection. In the book that I was reading, they're, they're, they're known for this dour, sour attitude. Something's wrong there. See, tradition... For tradition's sake, something can go wrong, and the church can get bent and not look like Jesus, not produce people who look like Jesus. So we need to go back to the Bible and evaluate our practices to see are, are the way are the ways we pr- are the ways we pray biblical. People say all the time, "Oh, prayer is just talking to God." Well, not really. Because when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, Jesus didn't go, you know how to talk, don't you? Just talk. He said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? He gave, there's wrong ways to pray, there's right ways to pray. There's wrong ways to baptize, there's right ways to baptize. Right? What we're going to see today, there's wrong ways to practice the Lord's Supper. There's right ways to practice the Lord's Supper. Now listen. So tradition can go wrong. You guys get this. You know how tradition can go wrong? Here's here's an illustration. Um, uh, We have a tradition. It's called St. Patrick's Day, right? Do we we know what St. Patrick's Day is? Do we know what it's about, St. Patrick's Day? Everybody loves it. It's huge in the Quad Cities, right? It's huge in the Quad Cities. What is St. Patrick's Day? Let me just tell you, just so if you didn't know this. St. Patrick's Day is the celebration on the day that St. Patrick died. Well, why do we celebrate that? St. Patrick was the first missionary to bring the gospel to Ireland, the gospel of Jesus Christ to Ireland. So we celebrate the life of this phenomenal missionary. That's the tradition, but let me trace this down. Now we celebrate the life of this amazing missionary who brought the gospel to Jesus by what? By wearing green, pinching those who don't, and getting hammered on green beer. Does this make sense? See, this is a tradition that has become unhinged from its purpose. It's become unhinged from what it was created for. Right? So our, tradition, our Christian traditions, that same thing can happen. Just because you're in a church and you're gathering and you're singing and Jesus is, you know, the, the words Jesus are up there doesn't mean that it's in line with what it was meant to be. This church was only 20 years, or this was only, Corinthians here was only about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. We're 2,000 years later. So we could, and they had already become unhinged. We could become unhinged as well. So... The Apostle Paul is about to evaluate their practice here, right? He's not really correcting their theology. He's correcting their practice, how it's working itself out, right? Many churches have, you go to their What They Believe page on their website, you're like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. And then you show up and you're like, whoa, this is not awesome. Your theology can be nails. Your theology can be on point. You can copy and paste that from somebody else. But what's your practice look like? Are your people shaped by the gospel? Are your people humble? Are your people holy? Are your people loving? Are they kind? Do they associate with the lowly? That's what we need to evaluate. And that's what Paul's about to evaluate. Let's look in verse 17. Chapter 11, verse 17. Here we go. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So he first commended him earlier, but now he says, I don't commend you because look, when you... Come together. Now, that term, come together, you could underline that. If you were studying this book, one of the things that you do when you study a book of the Bible, you study chapters of the Bible, is you highlight and underline words that you see come up over and over and over. And this really is the theme of this whole book. Come together. That's one Greek word, and it's in this book five different times. So he's talking about, he's evaluating them when they come together, when they gather. Okay? Let's keep reading. It's not for the better, but for the worse. Now, this is hilarious to me. This is something a preacher never says, right? You Listen, guys, it would be better if you just stayed home. That's what he's saying. Your gathering is awful. It would be better for you if you just, just stay home because what you're doing on Sunday, what you're, ga- what you're looking like when you gather is not a Christian gathering. This, this is a this. I can just imagine how offensive this is about to be. Let's keep reading. For in the first place, this is a a great preacher. Point number one, and and you'll notice later on, there is no point number two. (laughs) Point number one, and he just goes off, right? I forgot what I was talking about. Here we go. For in the first place, when you come together, there it is again, as a church, ecclesia, as a gathering of God's people, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Because there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. Here's Paul's line of thought. This is what Paul's thinking. Some of you guys, there's little cliques among you. I get that. The reason there has to be some cliques is because some of you are right and some of you are wrong. That's what he's saying. Some of you look like Jesus. Some of you don't. So there will be division. No, no. You can go to any organization on the planet and you're going to find that. Right? There's going to be cliques. There's going to be... Peop, there's going to be little, you know, whether it's the Republican convention, the Democratic convention, whether it's, uh, you know, FHA, whatever it is. or wh- I don't even know. FCA, all these different organizations you could go to, you could be part of. Boys, uh, boys clubs, girls clubs, all these things. You're going to see these little divisions. Why? Paul says one reason is because there's some that are true among you, there's some that are right among you, and there's some that are not. Jesus says, you know, we say in other places, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Let's keep reading. When you come together, here it is. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. Now, if you grew up in a low low church, or if you didn't go to church, that's not really that offensive to you, okay? If you grew up Catholic, right? If you walk into a Catholic church today, let me just say this. Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, he was so nervous serving the sacraments serving the Lord's Supper, that he was shaking and he froze like this. And his father was ashamed of him. His father was ashamed of his behavior because he he failed. Like, that's the kind of reverence he had for the Lord's Supper. Now, you think about somebody walking in and go, oh, you think that's the Lord's Supper, huh? No, it's not. What you're doing, that's not it. This is a very offensive statement. Can you imagine They were praying, they were reading the word, they were preaching the word, they were sharing stuff together, they were in a gathering, and Paul says, and they're eating the Lord's Supper, they're having bread and having wine, and Paul's saying, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. You think it is, but it's not. They were coming together. They were sharing the Lord's Supper. They were, they were doing it in a way. And Paul says three things here. Before I jump back to the text, Paul says three things that we're going to see. Number one, your gathering is actually worse than you not gathering. Ouch. Number two, what you're doing isn't even the Lord's Supper. And number three, a verse that could scares just about everybody who's ever read it, says there are serious consequences to the way you're behaving. That when you take the Lord's Supper like that, you're actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself. This is just, this is just awesome. Uh, can you imagine this? Hey, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. And by the way, remember that guy who died last week? God killed him because you took the supper wrong. Can you imagine reading this? This is concerning me, right? Oh, you're sick? Oh, you're dead? Well, it's because you ate the supper wrong. Paul... This is, this is, this seems very high church. He has a great, there's something happening in the supper. There's something happening in the Lord's table. There's power there. There's, there's something special there. And it must be done in a certain way. And these Corinthians are doing it wrong. Well, how are they doing it? This is what they're doing back in the day. This is how they used to do it. And um, they would, just like us, they would gather, they would sing, uh, they would preach the word of God, and then they would have, and it was come, it became known as. The agape feast It's called the agape feast The love feast They would eat together They would have a whole meal together Like Jesus did With his last supper And at the end of the meal They would take A cup of wine And they would take the bread And they would take Communion together But this love feast Much like a missional community That we have here We come together Every week We share a meal together We break bread together We thank God for his grace And giving it to us It's a love feast Of of a family right but what, what this devolved into was just a microcosm of the divisions that take place in our society. So what, what you had is you had rich people going to Bed Bath and & Beyond and buying their big, fancy picnic thing. You know those things where they open up and like, and like, they have real plates. You have real plates for your picnic? Oh, okay, right. And, and the other guys, they got their Walmart, you know, they got their Walmart little paper plates. Flimsy, spilling baked beans off the side, right? And the, and the rich, here's what would happen. The rich, because they were affluent, they got off work earlier, they would arrive with all of their buffet, all of their food. They'd have all their servants prepare. You know, they're carrying their, their, their giant picnic basket in. They lay it out, and they're like, let's go, family, let's eat. But the lower class, the poor people had to work a few extra hours so they would be, literally be late coming in and they would have nothing left to eat. They'd be coming in with their little bit of bread and, and they would go hungry. And by the time they're there and they're nibbling on their piece of bread, the rich people, he's drunk. This is awesome. This is just hilarious to me. What are you, I don't even know what you're talking about. We're doing the Lord's Supper every week, right? He's hungover in the corner. Paul, let, let's, let's just read it, if you don't believe me. Let's go. Verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Look, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I love this part. What? <laughs> you realize, that Paul's not verbally, do, this isn't a sermon. Paul's writing this. I love it. One goes, one eats his meal, one gets drunk. What? Like, who writes that? Like, right? What? He's like, what is happening here? This is what he's saying. This is what he's saying. This, what is going on, doesn't look like the original. What's happening in your gathering doesn't look like Christian tradition that I passed on to you. Doesn't look like what Jesus did. Your gatherings, you say they're Christian. They don't look like it. This should be really humbling for us Christians in this room. These people are believers. They're gathering together. They are praying. They are sharing in the Lord's Supper, but they look nothing like Jesus. And Paul is saying, it is possible for us to come together with Jesus on our lips, but do more harm than good. That our words could commend commend Jesus... What our behaviors when we're together could actually cancel out everything we have said. Whoa, we're th- can you imagine this is so upside down. To be eating a meal of grace and scarfing it down and getting drunk, and when someone comes in who's poor, look over and we go, sorry. You eat what you brought. Right? Can you imagine, like, all the single people here who are in missional communities, can you imagine if, like, the missional community only let you eat what you brought? Like, single people, that would really be rough, right? Like, oh, half-eaten bag of Doritos again. (laughs) Right? (laughs) The the same bag of Doritos week after week. We didn't finish them last week, so I guess I'll eat them now. (laughs) Right? Listen, this text should challenge us. This, cha- this text challenges me as your pastor. The church of Jesus Christ is to be marked by humility, by self-sacrifice, by loving other people more than I love myself, especially the poor and the marginalized and the ones who in my middle class brain I think they should pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get their act together should be marked by my sacrificial love for them. And this text is showing us that barely 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, this young church has become the exact opposite of what it was supposed to look like. They were still praying, still gathering, still singing, still taking the Lord's Supper, but they had become a place of sec- self-exaltation, a place where the halves ran the show. Have nots when hungry. If you're if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, this shouldn't really surprise you. If you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to the very beginning and you track through it, this is our story of human beings. We're not humble. We're competitive. Other people are, I'm not, but you guys are competitive what I've heard, at least. <clears throat> I almost got kicked out of our own church picnic on the volleyball court. I don't know what's going on. You, would you get off? Oh, wait, he's the pastor. Can't kick him out. We just quit then, no. Like, we're competitive. We want to evaluate, how do I measure up to people around me? And really, what we're not, we're not really concerned with how we measure up. We're concerned with, I don't really care where you're at, honestly, as long as I'm one step above. That's all I need. And you see this through the whole Old Testament. People killing each other. And what I want to do today is that the Lord is trying to tell us something special in the supper, but for us to get it, we've got to, in a sense, follow the thread back to where it began. Many of you, you, you've experienced the supper here, or you've experienced the supper at another church, or you've seen it on TV, or you've heard about it. And so your experience is around what you know, and you don't really know where it came from. And and what we need to do is reform according to the word of God and go back to where it came from, follow that thread to see what it looked like in the days of Jesus, and maybe possibly can we follow that thread back even farther than the days of Jesus. That's what we're going to do real quick, well, real quick, you know, in the next little bit. And Paul does that. He starts that process for us. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That's discipleship, y'all. That's passing on the Christian tradition. I received from Jesus. Now I'm passing it on to you. That on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. On the night when he was betrayed. Now listen, this meal Remember how I told you the whole point of this text was coming together? This meal brings things together. Things that should be separate, it brings together. One of the things this meal brings together is it connects us to the past. It connects us to that night when Jesus was betrayed. Well, what was special about that night? See, every time we observe the supper, we kind of need to go back to that night. What was special about that night? What kind of night was it? Well, let me tell you, it was a Passover night it was the Passover meal that they were celebrating well what is the Passover Justin right see this is tradition the Passover is something that happened in history that's very important that we need to follow that thread back and listen and see how our traditions what we do today need to be informed by our past need to be informed by a story If you don't know the story of what we're doing, it has no meaning. If you don't know the story of the Last Supper and then the story of the Passover, you don't get the significance of this meal. You might take it, you might eat it week in and week out and for the rest of your life, but it won't move you. It won't shape you into a more Christ-centered and humble person like it's supposed to do. We've got to remember, we've got to go back. And I'll be honest, like, sometimes I I, I serve the elements week in and week out, and I can tell sometimes when somebody doesn't get it. I'm going to snatch it out of my hand, right? Like it's a starburst or a piece of popcorn, right? Like just, there's something about it, like, you, you don't get the significance of this meal. You don't understand the story that's behind it. Now let me let me illustrate this in the Lord of the Rings, sorry, you know I have like two illustrations in the Lord of the Rings, Pippin is in this city that's under siege. he's separated from his friends he's on this quest that he got caught up in, and his death is he's certain that he's going to die. death is imminent. Um, I don't want to go into it too much, but all the bad all the bad guys are. Uh, sieging this, this castle. And he's, he knows it's going to fall. There's three times more of them as there are of the ones that are trying to protect it. Failure is imminent. Death is imminent. Okay? They're about to be overrun. But just at the last moment when like all hope is lost and death is sure, he hears in the distance a horn. If you know anything about the book, it's the horn of Rohan. It's the riders of Rohan, this isn't in the book, but he hears it just in the, le- just in the distance and all the riders come just at the nick of time and they rescue and they deliver and they do push back the enemy and Pippin is rescued. Now, that's kind of cool, right? That's the story behind it. But what, what I love is that t- towards the end of the book, Tolkien writes, it's in the book, it's not in the movie, he writes that we're told that the rest of his life Pippin could never hear a horn in the distance without breaking into tears. See, why? Because the horn was a physical and audible reminder of his salvation. And when he heard the horn, he, he relived, he re-felt, he re-experienced his salvation. The horn would make have you guys ever had something in your life like that, that would bring back a memory and it would cause you to feel that same way you felt? See, it connected him to the past, that horn. He remembered the sacrifices of the people who died to save him. No matter how upset he was, how angry he got, how grieved he was, how despondent and low his life got, if he heard a horn, he would cry and he would rejoice because he remembered his salvation. Listen, the Lord's Supper is our horn. The Lord's Supper is a phys- something physical that's been placed into our hands that meant to connect to the past, connect to a story, and emotionally move us in the moment. And remind us of our great salvation. But let's get into it. What is it? Let me, let me, what, what's that story? Real quick. In the beginning, Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. We spent a whole year studying the book of Genesis. I encourage you, go back and listen to those podcasts. God, the uncreated creator, you trace everything back. It goes to God. He speaks creation into existence. He Forms Man and woman He puts them In a perfect garden He gives them One rule Just don't eat Of this tree Right They eat Of the tree Of course Everything breaks Everything is fractured Their relationship With God is broken Their relationship To creation is broken Their relationship To each other Is broken They have children Right Cain and Abel First thing Cain and Abel Well not first thing But Cain and Abel End up Cain kills Abel Right Murder, the first murder. From this, and, and when, when Adam and Eve fell, when God cursed creation for their disobedience, he said this. There's gonna come someone who the serpent had tricked Adam and Eve. There's gonna come someone who will stomp on the serpent's head and he'll, his heel will be wounded by the serpent but he, he will crush the serpent. And what, what he was saying is, you, you've jacked everything up. All of creation is busted now. But there's going to be someone who will fix it. Someone will make things right. Someone will remove the thorns from the thorn bushes and just have roses. Someone will take the anger out of the world. Someone will take the pain out. Someone will take the hurt and the angst and, the, and, the, um, and just the, the spiritual brokenness the hole that we have that we try to fill with so many different things. Someone's coming who's going to fix the world. So through the whole book of Genesis, there's this angst, this longing. Is this the one? Is this the guy? Are you the guy? Are you the guy? And we get to see. (laughs) You read it and you're like, oh, maybe this is the guy. And then you realize, oh, he just slept with his mom. Oh, that's not the guy. Oh, he slept with his sister. Not the guy, right? Noah, Noah, Noah. Noah's drunk and naked. Not the guy, right? Like you just keep, you think he's the guy, like, and everybody that grew up in church when we, we went through this series in Genesis were, like, shocked. Because in, in children's, children's ministry, in children's school, you only get, like, the good half of the story. You never get the back half. Like, oh, boy, I want to be like Noah. No! Don't be like Noah. Right? And then God chooses this man, and God chooses this moon worshiper, pagan moon worshiper, named abraham god comes down and chooses this guy and says i'm gonna do something different with you i'm gonna bless you and your new family he didn't have a family at the time i'm gonna bless you and this new family i'm gonna make you in a multitude of people you're gonna be my people and i'm gonna give you grace so you're like maybe abraham's the guy right Then you then go along in the story you know abraham and his wife his wife's not making a baby so what's he do he takes another servant Gets her knocked up. Things go bad. All right, he's a he's polygamist. He's not the guy. And we follow this all the way through the book of Genesis. We see it in Abraham. We see it in Isaac. We see it in Jacob. We see it in Joseph. They're not the redeemer. They're not the one who's going to fix things. And the book of Genesis ends with this little bitty family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, being pushed into Egypt by a famine, and Joseph gets exalted as the prime minister of Egypt, so his people, the people of Abraham, get special treatment, and it it kind of ends on like a great note, but what happens between Genesis and the second book of the Bible, Exodus, is over 400 years in Egypt, this family is like Sacred City I'm just gonna say alright this family that started out as this little bitty bunch of folks a couple dozen people after 400 years is many scholars say 2 million see they know about the birds and the bees that's all I'm saying right they get be fruitful and multiply it so far we have, four, we have 14 uh, pregnant ladies in Sacred City in 2014 I told I was laughing I'm like that, we are gonna grow as a church by 10% just by giving birth this year this is phenomenal This is phenomenal. So they're making babies. God's blessing them. They're multiplying after 400 years. And then what happens is the Pharaoh that was kind to the the Hebrew people, the Pharaoh that was kind, he gets moved, or he dies, and a new Pharaoh comes up, and this Pharaoh, he's he's pragmatic, right? He looks and he goes, we have all these people here who are living off our land? Um, No. They're slaves now. So, where Joseph and his family were exalted. He's the prime minister. That relationship is gone, and now the Hebrew people are slaves in the, pe- in the place of Egypt, and that slavery gets worse and worse and worse, and the people's prayers go up to God, and God hears, and God sends a deliverer. What's his name? Prince of Egypt. We've seen this, right? Prince of Egypt, Charlton Heston, whatever. They, Moses gets raised up. We know, and it's so funny, like, Moses is the guy! Moses' first act, he kills an Egyptian. Moses is not the guy, <laughs> right? He's not the one who's going to do it. But, but what happens is, is God says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to be your mouthpiece. You're gonna, I'm going to speak through you. Take this staff, right? Go to the people. Say these things. And he goes, and God says to Pharaoh, or Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no. Pharaoh thought he was a god. Pharaoh worshiped other gods. Pharaoh said, what's your god? I don't care about your god. You are a slave of of me. So obviously your God is not powerful. My gods are more powerful. So no, I won't let you go. And a series of plagues happen, right? We know about these series of plagues. But the last plague, right, where the people are are like getting frustrated at Moses, like Moses, we'll just stay here. Stop going to Pharaoh. You're making it worse on us. And God's like, no, go to Pharaoh one more time. And you tell him this, that on, on this night, this night is not like any other night. This night, you're to take a lamb without blemish, a male lamb, and you're to kill that lamb, and you're to take its blood, and you're to smear it on the doorposts of your house. And this night, this is what God says, I'm coming to town. On this night, I'm coming to town, and I'm going to kill every firstborn. As a firstborn, it's a rough night, right? God's coming to town. He's taking people out. He's going to kill every firstborn because Pharaoh won't let his people go. But he says this, but if you obey me, if you take the blood of the lamb and you smear it on your doorpost, I will see the blood. And he says, I will pass over you. I will pass over you. This, and you're to eat, after you kill the lamb, you're to eat the lamb, you're to eat unleavened bread, and this is the meal of Passover. There's a sanctuary under the blood. I will pass over. And what happened? And that's exactly what happened. Now what's interesting, you could have been an unbeliever as long as you put the blood. You could have had two wives. You could have been an unrepentant sin. You could have been living any way you want as long as you put the blood. Had nothing to do with their morals. Had nothing to do with their behavior other than putting the blood. The blood... He did not, the the angel of death or God did not come in and and see the blood and go, but how's he living? Did he do his devotions today? Eh, I'm a, the blood plus devotions, eh." He saw the blood and he moved on. And they had this tradition where this, on Exodus 12, it tells us that this Passover meal was instituted in this moment on this day and it was to be celebrated for eternity. He says this is, a, this is a forever meal. It should be practiced forever. And when they, they would practice it, a child would sit down. Usually, a child, it's like, kind of like a catechism. A child would start off the meal by saying, Mom, Dad, how, or the mom and dad would ask, How is this meal different from all others? And they would recite back to them what happened at the Passover. And this is how it went on for thousands. for for a couple thousand years, a few thousand years. So these people, Hebrew people, were saved because of the blood of the lamb that was on the doorpost. And they were delivered that night. They were delivered. They were led out of Egyptian slavery. And the Hebrews celebrated this meal, this Passover meal, every single year. Okay? So 4th of July for us, Right, we celebrate it every year. They would celebrate the Passover every single year. And this is what Jesus was doing with his apostles on the night that he was to be betrayed. It was the Passover night. They met like this. Jesus had met like this 33 years of his life, roughly. Right? They've done this every single year. Every single year they gather together for Passover, and they take the unleavened bread, and they take the lamb, and they take the cups, and they quote the liturgy of the Passover. And they say, this is the bread of our affliction from us in the wilderness that God delivered us from, and this is the cup of our suffering. But this night was different this night jesus was presiding over the meal and jesus when it was time to take the passover jesus took the bread and he didn't say this is the bread of our suffering he said this is the bread of my suffering this is my body broken for you thousands of years of tradition just turned on its head then he takes the cup and he doesn't say this is the cup of our suffering He says, this is the cup of my suffering. This is the cup of God's wrath poured out on me. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. See, this is is the new covenant, he says. What Jesus was showing us, and what all scriptures affirm, (laughs) is that the blood of lambs never saved anyone. God didn't have some kind of vendetta against four legged furry creatures. I just hate those lambs. Take them out. Now, see, Isaiah, the prophet who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, said this All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on who? On him. The iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. This is before Jesus. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah didn't know this guy's name. Isaiah called him the suffering servant. See, Isaiah knew the Redeemer's not here. Wasn't none of the patriarchs. Wasn't David. He's coming, though, and Isaiah said it's a suffering servant, and this is what he's going to look like. This is what he's going to do. And he's going to, like a lamb led to the shears. he's going to lay down his life for others. And what's interesting, see, there was no lamb. Paschal lamb. There was no lamb at the Last Supper. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he stood up and he said, I'm the lamb. Jesus was telling them, I am the one. I am Messiah. I am the Redeemer. I am the one who will stomp the head of the serpent. I am the one who makes all things new. I am the one who makes everything right, who makes all the pain and all the hurt and everything bad come untrue. I'm the one. I'm the lamb that doesn't just deliver you from Egyptian bondage and Egyptian slavery. It doesn't just get you out of the trouble for the moment. I'm the one who deals the death blow to death. I'm the one who deals with your ultimate problem, sin. I'm the one who makes things right, who reverses the curse. So, as I close here, what does the supper do? What was Jesus showing us, pointing back to the Passover? He is the Passover. What does the supper do? I can't get into that completely, but Paul tells us one thing it does. He says it proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. You know what that means? Can I just, spend, I know you, you spend so much of your time trying to be here. Trying to be a better mom, a better dad, a better provider, a better theologian, a better employee than the next guy. You spend so much of your time trying to earn, trying to convince others that you're actually better than the way you feel about yourself. I feel broken. I feel there's something wrong with me. See, that's, I would, I'm, I'm glad I have a good coach for Acts 29 because when I go to my Acts 29 retreats, I just feel, I'm like, I don't even deserve to be here. Oh, yeah. I, 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 one of the guys is memorizing the book of John in Greek. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Well, that's cool. I like the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> right. Like, how much of our time, how much of our time is feeling inadequate, right? Now, this, 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 this might not seem like comfort to you, but it's gonna be a comfort. <laughs> In the supper, Jesus has already outed you. The cross tells us, you're broken. You're not good enough. You're not okay. You are bent. There's something wrong with you. Like, I know we don't like to hear that. It's deeply humbling. But that's what the bread does. And God just, He gives us something in the supper. He puts it in our hands and He says, You know what this says? This says, You can't do it. I needed someone else. He didn't give me a list to obey. He didn't give me commandments to obey to get my way to God. He gave me broken body of a man who did what I can't do. He puts it in my hands. He puts it in my mouth. It becomes a part of who I am. It connects me to him. The supper itself tells us, and I'm just saying, I'm going to offend you. The the supper says, you suck. That's what the supper says. And all of our attempts in life at telling everybody else that we don't are lies. All our attempts to to try to prove to ourselves and prove to others that we're somehow different than the rest of humanity, that we figured it out and we've got it together and we don't feel broken and we don't feel lonely and we don't feel lost, they're a lie. They're a sham. The cross has outed us. And there's freedom in that. There's freedom in that to say nothing to the cross I bring. I don't bring anything. My good works are nothing. All my sin, all my shame, that's all I bring. That's all I contribute. And what's he do? What does he do? We come to the cross broken, lost, empty, with nothing but a bag of sin. And what does he do? He puts bread in our hands. He puts a cup to our lips. He says, eat this, drink this. every week we get to do that every week we get to come to the table and he doesn't say some spiritual la la you know pixie dust or something he says food bread wine take it into you and when it comes in it becomes a part of us I don't know what it does when it gets down there but it does something It goes even to the cellular, cellular level. It becomes a part of us. Jesus comes into us and goes with us to the end of the age. This is a physical reminder that I'm not good enough. I need a redeemer. I need to be rescued. That I'm a slave to my sin. And the only man who wasn't a slave, the only man who was free, the only man who wasn't a slave, took the place of a slave, died the death of a slave for me. So we can quote Tim Keller around here all the time. And we say, what's the gospel? What, what is it? it's, this, it's this, I am worse than I ever thought possible. But at the same time, I'm more loved and accepted than I could ever imagine or ever dream." And that produces humility where I can say, I can sing a song about I'm a sinner, but it also produces just this hope and this buoyancy that Christ loves me so much that what can the world do to me? I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to lose. Christ gave it all to me. So we're going to take a moment. We're going to process this a little bit two things that we do when we come to the supper and we need to do it every week and I didn't get it, even get into the second half really but two things we need to remember we need to follow that thread back to the night Jesus was betrayed follow that thread back to the Passover what does it mean what does it mean it means those who come under Christ have no condemnation it means the blood is what frees us from death not our good works not our good behavior cleanses us from all of that the second thing we need to do we need to examine scripture says later examine ourselves we need to judge ourselves rightly and that's this the only people that come to the table are sinners specifically repentant sinners if you're sitting there and you're not repentant God's been convicting you, and you're just like, whatever, God, whatever, whatever. Don't eat this meal. God's, see, repentant sinners, all of our judgment is on Christ. If you're not repentant, Paul says later on that that judgment can do bad things to you. I don't even know what he means by that completely. He's pretty, you got sick and you even died because of it. Paul's pretty clear about it. So when you come to this table, judge yourself. If you have anything against a brother, go to that brother. Make it right. Make it right. So the two things we do. We remember and we examine. Listen, I'm, I'm just going to say if, if those of you in here who, who you you lend yourself towards introspection anyways and kind of this negative sense and you're always in your sin I, I just want you to know that like the confession said it earlier or the the abs- or the profession of faith our repentance is never perfect so what he's not saying is uh, when you repent perfectly and you stop sinning, come to the table it's not what he's saying it's not what he's saying at all he's saying when you turn from your sin and you you hate and you hate your sin and you cling to the cross and you say I am broken I'm a sinner I need to be fed that's who comes I'm gonna pray Father this this other religion has so many things that you have to do visit Mecca go here do that pray this many times a day and our our faith is free of that except in a couple instances and this being one of them and you said I want you to eat I want you to drink things that we already do we come to the table as sinners who try to find happiness and joy and be made right and so many different other things we eat and drink from so many different tables throughout the week many times tables that we provide the resources for we put the food on the table we we labor over the stove We do the work. This meal's different. This meal we've done nothing for. This meal's been provided for us. This meal's been paid for, for us. This meal's been set on the table. This is a meal of grace. This meal... (laughs) will be broken for us, will be handed to us. We do nothing but reach helpless hands out and receive. And Jesus, when we take that into ourself, you do the spiritual work. Your body comes into us. I pray that it would be like the horn of Gondor to Pippin, that every time he heard it, he would have an emotional experience. I pray that when we come to the table, Father, we don't have to stir something up and make something happen, but I pray that you would do something sweet and powerful in us, that as we eat, you would change us. As we eat and as we approach in humility, you would make us into a certain type of people. People who look like Jesus. People who sing about Jesus, people who talk about Jesus. this, through your spirit, we pray. And for those of us in this room, let me just stop the prayer and say this. The, the Lord's Supper, I didn't even mention this, the Lord's Supper is only for baptized believers. So if you're not a baptized believer in here, we don't want you to eat the supper. We want you to take Christ. We want you to take Christ by faith, to literally, like, eat him, like, literally believe in him and trust in him. And at all of your sins, it's like the, The lamppost, all the blood is washed over, all of your sins, all the shame, all the guilt, all of the past, all the future will be taken care of in this moment. If you're not baptized, if you're not a believer, we invite you to become one. And for those of us who are baptized, and we are a believer, the next minute or so as I prepare the, the men who are coming down to serve with me, would you do work on your heart? Would you examine? Would you repent? Would you remember? Pray this in Christ's name.